you know, it's a chicken and egg situation. Uh. Mm. Let's say when you have less, when you have pressured fund managers mm. who don't have that much time to dedicate uh, to individual sectors or companies and therefore they are less curious, mm. they are not going to be the one that, you know, reading that 100-page report and then mm. the, the sell-side analysts just react to the where the demand has shifted. Ah, so okay. if the, the focus of um, an asset owner is on regular returns but on a short-term horizon, so you're mm. going to be measured on a week, on a month, on a quarter at most performance, mm. then nobody is really saying that, okay, let me take you know one day to dive into something that could be a multi-bagger two years down the line because mm. who knows, they may not be there. Yeah. <laughs> Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firl.co slash free. Good day, good day everyone and welcome back to the Firel Podcast. Uh, today we have a very special guest. Uh, someone I bumped into, I think, in 2017 when he was speaking at a BFM event. Uh, they introduced him as an economist. And at that point, I think he was the only the second economist that I knew besides Dr. Ye Kim Leng of, uh, uh, of Sunway. And um, yeah, today we have uh, Chris Eng, who is currently the chief strategist <laughs> and i'm going to dwell deeper into what what the title of that uh, what was the meaning of that title uh he's also a trained engineer by profession and um, we're gonna we're gonna find out how he actually pivoted into a career as an equity analyst as well as a chief strategist so chris welcome to the show thank you thank you john morning yeah uh mj and I, uh, we're very excited to have uh, someone who has, you know, um, been in the industry long enough. And we're going to try to get the audience through your life story and what are the tips and tricks that they can apply from your own learning uh, um, throughout the experience in the industry and try to see whether they can become better investors themselves. So I, I usually like to start this kind of podcast with a little bit of background, um, you know, What's your, what was, why did you choose engineering? Take us through your profession and then why the sudden pivot into equities actually? <laughs> hey, sure, sure. Uh, morning, MJ as well. Um, yeah, I guess I was a fairly decent student in uh, school. Um, but then when I was um, taking my SPM, I had a bit of an anxiety attack. So before that, I was uh, to be a surgeon and uh, I think when you have uh, anxiety attacks then you have these uh, hand tremors oh so that kind of ruled out um, you know at that time you know I was still young so you, you don't 
you're not able to have the long-term perspective knowing that these are things that can be overcome, you know, just a matter of time. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I said, I won't be able to make it as a surgeon. So let's, let's look at what are the other options. So I ended up in uh, engineering. I see. Um, so I, I did my uh, undergraduate in uh, electrical and electronic engineering. I uh, worked as an engineer for a while uh, in between being a management consultant. Hmm. Um, so I was at, uh, I, I started off with Accenture, then I uh, went back to engineering, uh, was at KTA Tanaga at a very exciting time, mm -hmm. which was the rollout of all the uh, first generation independent power producers. I see. So I got to uh, travel around Malaysia, visit uh, these first gen IPPs being set up. Um, and then I uh, furthered my studies. I went to do a, a master's of philosophy, uh, also in engineering. <laughs> uh, then I joined another consulting firm, which was uh, PA Consulting, but I got a chance to work in the power sector after that. So we looked at uh, the regulation of Malaysia mm. and uh, Malaysia was actually the first looking at the regulation in the uh, region. So unfortunately, you know, nothing has happened since then. <laughs> Uh, but I, I got to roll out the uh, the regulation in Singapore itself. So I worked a couple of years uh, in Singapore uh, doing the uh, weekend fly back to KL. Wow. Um, until uh, yeah, until my wife got pregnant. So I said, uh, you know, we, we, we can't keep doing this. So we need to come back. So I, I came back to KL. Uh, that was in uh, 2000, uh, late 2002. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't much going on in KL in terms of um, power-related consulting jobs. Uh, so, so me and my wife, we pray quite hard. Say, you know, we uh, doesn't look like anything much happening. They wanted to send me to uh, Indonesia. So it was uh, out of the frying pan into the fire. Uh, you know, because we, we had a thriving practice at that time in Indonesia. A lot of uh, World Bank and ADB projects going on. So he said, oh, that's worse. You know, so we prayed quite hard for a job. But uh, after a couple of months, uh, nothing came along. Mm. And uh, so, so we said, you know, if uh, God wants me to go somewhere, he would just open the doors. So one day, I uh, opened up the paper and I saw this uh, advert for OSK Research, you know, which mm. was my, my old company. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what it was about. You know, so I thought it was about market research. So as a consultant, you do do quite a bit of work with uh, market con uh, research companies. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, you know, I said, okay, let's, let's just give it a try. Let's go for the interview. And uh, when I turned up at the interview, I, uh, I met with the head of research at that time, um, you know, who's still active in the industry nowadays. And I guess after a couple of minutes, you realize that hey, this guy, you know, he's an engineer, he's got no financial training, <laughs> you know, he's not going to be able to do this. <laughs> and uh, at that time, I was not active in investment. So I thought, mm. Mm, it's not really my cup of tea. Uh, probably not keen as well. Mm -hmm. Then he said, uh, but wait a minute, you know, we've got a, we've got a ventures arm. Mm -hmm. So why don't we see whether there's a vacancy there and whether you'd be suitable for, for ventures. Mm. Um, and in PA Consulting, I had, uh, we've done a couple of projects with uh, um, MathCap. So oh, I MathCap, was, yeah. Um, yeah, I was, uh, you know, familiar with what venture capitalists look at and all that. So I said, okay, let, let's, uh, let's explore, see whether that's possible. So about uh, two weeks later, I get a call and said, you know, this is the uh, MD's uh, secretary and, uh, you know, uh, MD wants to meet you. Mm. So okay, la, let, let's go and see about this venture cap thing. Uh, so I turn up and uh, halfway through the interview, 
you know, he, I, I asked him, I said, oh, is this for the ventures job? Yeah. He says, uh, no, 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 you got no financial background. You can't do ventures. <laughs> this is for research, you know, equities research. So I guess I, I kind of look quite doubtful at mm. this, um, you know, because I say I wasn't active in investment. I didn't have financial training. And then he, he, he looks at me and then he says, why don't you go home and you talk about this with your wife? <laughs> so I have never gone to an interview before or since then where somebody actually tells me to go home and talk about this to my wife. So, I think uh, the guy has some experience. Who's yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he's obviously a wise man. <laughs> so, so we went back, you know, and then talked to my wife and said, well, you've got no financial training. There's no reason why he'll offer you this job. And why would he ask you to go back and talk about this to your wife? You know, so he said, this must be a miracle. You know, this is God's work here. Yeah. So he said, okay, la, let's try it. You know, so call the secretary after a couple of days of praying and uh, thought that you know, maybe he's changed his mind, you know. So they said, no, no, it's still available. Okay, come and join. So I, uh, I, I joined and I remember the two months leading up to my first day, uh, every day it was uh, Investopedia reading. <laughs> You know, just to, to catch up on things and uh, went to Bursa website, downloaded, uh, you know, tons of annual reports and uh, quarterly statements and just uh, ran through all those documents. Mm. And um, yeah, so so then that's it. You know, that's I end up in investment, uh, baptism of fire, uh, some interesting stories to share maybe. Uh, <laughs> but after six months, the MD actually uh, came by and said, uh, well, you know, I think you're, you're trained enough now. Would you like to join ventures? And uh, at that time, you know, I, I guess I've been bitten by the uh, equities bug and said, no, 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 I, I'm quite happy doing research. So, yeah, yeah. So, I was there for um, eight years. It's eight years. Yeah, almost nine years on the mm -hmm. sell side uh, before mm -hmm. moving to the buy side uh, for, for I, another uh, five years. Mm. Actually, this is the first time I've heard uh, someone venturing into equity space uh, either not from reading a Warren Buffett book or either he, he didn't get interested in investing at 10 or 11 years old, but it's just uh, in a way an act of, almost like an act of God. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it's unique because um, the first place you started off to prepare for your job was actually downloading annual reports. I mean, just out of my engineering curiosity sake, uh, uh, did your engineering background somewhat help you in a way to prepare to do that kind of research or was it more because of your essential background? Just curious. I guess it was engineering because uh, a lot of, um, you know, I was a consulting engineer. So we had to prepare a lot of technical specifications. Mm. So quite used to reading lengthy, boring documents. <laughs> Uh, but also, I guess, the kind of structured thinking and, uh, you know, you, you can actually step through Mm -hmm. um, bit by bit, page by page on uh, these annual reports and try to especially read between the lines. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as a consulting engineer, you do deal with various people and of course, you're always on the lookout for whether or not some facts are trying to be slipped between the lines. So, ah. you know, it did prepare me for that. Yeah, That's very interesting, actually. Um, what was your, if you don't mind me asking, what was your biggest struggle in the years when you were doing uh, sell-side uh, research, actually? Uh, trusting people. <laughs> so, so I was head of research, um, you know, and I guess uh, the first couple, I would say first couple of years, but first couple of months were quite tough as an mm. equities research analyst. And uh, 
you know, I met with a couple of uh, listed company uh, directors, you know, perhaps less, less than completely uh, savory characters. <laughs> uh, you know, so I used to tell all my young uh, analysts when they join, you know, I said like, yeah, a lot of times, you know, the majority of people out there are trying to cheat you, trying to get you to write something good. <laughs> you know, so you got to take everything with a pinch of salt. Mm, mm, mm. And, and that's a very interesting insight. And because, we, I mean, it's an open secret that sometimes uh, analysts or even journalists are actually coerced by, uh, you know, interested parties to write a favorable article and all that. How, if you don't mind me asking, how, how do you withstand the pressure and all that? How, how do you hold your ground and set your boundaries if you don't, yeah, if you don't mind? Well, I guess on the sales side, we were quite blessed because at that time, um, the company wanted to build up the franchise. Mm. And uh, of course, you know, OSK Research had a bit of a history. So I think management decided that they wanted to build up the franchise to make it more um, professional. And so, you know, it, it really jived with my own character and what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so we said that, you know, we're going to strive for independence and integrity. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also helped that the corporate finance team was not particularly strong. You know, it came mm. from a retail trading background. Mm. So we didn't have that institutional business to pressure us in that direction. So there was not much... Um, business pressure and because mm -hmm. uh, management gave us quite a bit of free hand to uh, write what we wanted to write about mm. who we wanted to write you know so I wouldn't say it's unique but it's rather unusual and mm. um, I think clients appreciated that fact um, that you know at least when they met the sales side analysts they could see that you know we, we are writing what we believe in great Great. I have a question uh, yeah, regards to that. And I think that's uh, really great to hear that independence is a very is of high priority for you as an analyst because uh, sometimes, in fact, I don't know whether you agree, I find that the opposite tends to be true for a lot of analysts. But for, for your case, is there like a piece of work or report that you're very proud of, right, in terms of uh, what either you or your team has produced? Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, the, the team, of course, has uh, what we tried to do was, you know, we, we were we were like the uh, rebellion. <laughs> I always say, you know, when during the time when I ran the team, uh, we view ourselves as uh, the rebellion. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the bigger houses was the big bad empire. <laughs> so we, we try to do things a little bit different. You know, definitely uh, corporate access was... Uh, not as easy to get as uh, some of the bigger houses. So we said we'd go um, hands-on, you know, we, we'd walk the pavement, hit the streets. And one of the things the team did, which I was quite proud of, was our very first uh, consumer survey. Mm. So we, we sent about uh, five young analysts uh, to the entrances of shopping malls and supermarkets wow. and just ask people, you know, what were their preferences and all that. Uh, it helped that at that time I have a few Leng Loi in ah. uh, my young analyst team, you know. So, so we got good response, you know. And then we put out, I think it was quite long, if I'm not mistaken, was a 30 over page report about, you know, consumer preferences and which would be the consumer companies that benefit. Um, rare la, nowadays, you know, nowadays you don't need to as well. La, you've got Survey Monkey and all that. But at that time, we, we had to uh, walk the streets and uh, go, you know, person by person with... Uh, 
notebooks in the hands. So that was quite uh, good. Uh, myself personally, I, I wrote about this report. This is, uh, this is how many years ago now? 14 years ago about wow. the mad rush for unconventional oil. Mm. So that was just before, um, you know, the boom in shale. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think I, I wrote about, you know, Arctic oil, deep water exploration and shale. And uh, also we, we talked a little bit with, with our economists at that time, you know, he, he had some contacts. So we looked about the uh, pipeline that's uh, been proposed numerous times from Yan in Kedah to mm. Kelantan. And then we said, you know, no way this was going to get built. So, so that was uh, sticking our necks out a little bit, uh, mm. particularly since I covered a number of uh, site Mokta stocks, you know. So ah. really coming out to say that, yeah, some of the other companies are okay, but he's not going to be able to build this pipeline. Uh, and, and that got a bit of attention as well. I see, I see. Um, based on, your, you know, I really, <laughs> I really love that part of the story about the bottoms-up approach where, you know, today there's this... Uh, a little bit of an unsavory kind of comment, desktop analyst. <laughs> I don't know if you heard. Um, yeah. Where do you see that culture? Is, is, is that culture more embedded today in equities, uh, sell, especially sell-side or buy-side research? And do you still think that as young analysts coming into an industry, it's really hit the streets, scuttlebutt, uh, that is the best kind of training? What are your thoughts on that actually? I think, yeah, definitely, you know, I mean, not just analysts, but I think even investors, um, you know, when I get contacts or friends asking me, say, what's the best way to know about a company? I say, if it's the kind of sector where you can touch and feel, you know, go out there and experience it. So if you're looking at property stocks, go to attend their launches, you know, mm. or visit the uh, showroom when it's a very odd time and nobody expects you to be there, talk to the salespeople, see what they say, you know, or if it's a read, you, you must make that point of visiting that mall or that industrial complex or that hospital or that hotel. Mm. Um, otherwise, you know, you, you just don't have the feel. I mean, I always say that I, I don't trust tobacco analysts who don't smoke and gambling <laughs> analysts who don't go to casino, you know, That's uh, a good one. auto analysts who don't drive, you know, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> You don't even take. You don't even feel touch and feel the product, right? How will you know whether tobacco is gonna be? You know, you have to take a puff of Marlboro only, then you know it's good, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you you get all this uh, nowadays. Well, not nowadays, like, but a couple of years ago, you get all these young lady analysts covering Carex, you know, and then like, <laughs> are you sure you're the right person to cover Carex? <laughs> Probably they did a survey on their spouses or, or they're not they weren't married, you know. So I'm yeah, like, mm, okay. okay. <laughs> Either way, it doesn't look good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great. So uh, moving on slightly onto your role where you actually um, went over to Ethica, and then in Ethica you headed their uh, head of research first for alternative investments and product. That's where I, I think I met you early in twenty seventeen. Uh, what what is alternative investment if you don't mind sharing so especially to the audience okay so um i was um, i was brought into ethica of course at that time you know osk was going through a merger so so i moved on um and uh, i was i was actually brought in to set up the research team so I, I um i i got to build up from scratch my own equities research as well as fixed income research so again that's kind of like a 
once in a lifetime opportunity because mm. uh, in essence, I almost didn't have any legacy staff. Mm. Uh, so, so I got to build up both teams from scratch. So that was quite rewarding. Mm. But uh, I guess after about one and a half years, you know, things had pretty much settled down. And uh, at that time, ESG was still a little new. So I, I didn't get a chance to pursue it yet, which was something I, I pursued, you know, in about one year after that. So, so my boss said, hey, look, you know, we've got this team and um, the, their boss moved on. So we mm. need somebody to, to look after them. I don't really want to hire somebody else. Can you cover both teams? Mm. So I looked at it and, uh, you know, the team basically t- did two things. We mm. had uh, set aside an amount of our prop funds uh, to look at non-cash equities, uh, non-cash bonds. Mm. So anything that was non-cash equities and non-cash bonds and non-money market, uh, we, we could invest in it. So that was uh, pretty interesting. It, it wasn't a lot of money, but it mm. was interesting. So we looked at from structured products to um, uh, mutual funds to ETFs. You know? So to us, that was alternatives. Uh, we didn't have the mandate for private equity or uh, luxury products or anything like that. Mm. Uh, and the team also crafted um, new, new investment link products for our insurance. Mm. Okay. You know, so okay. anything that was uh, investment link product, uh, the underlying asset came from this team. Yeah. I see. I see. Um, how would you say in terms of uh, just a little bit of a pivot uh, and MJ chip in if you have any more questions. Uh, just a little bit of, of a pivot because I'm somewhat uh, on the front line of insurance and um, there's always this myth and perception about uh, investment link products in uh, insurance. Uh. So, personally, I, I, I would want to hear your personal take on it, on whether cost effectiveness is better for an investment link product because you guys structure the product, right? Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, uh, pure insurance in which, uh, you know, just a term plan and uh, cost of insurance rising. What, what, is, what is your opinion to, first, your cons- from the consumer's hat, and then the other from the insurer's hat, which one is you know, more uh, sustainable in a way? Okay, I guess, um, I mean, different people have different needs. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I think if you're looking for pure protection, then you know, you, you, what you want is you want to buy the insurance product. Mm, it's mm, a pure mm. insurance product. Um, you know, the premiums will probably be lower, provide you that coverage. And... I think especially in the uh, the olden days when mm. a lot of people bought insurance for what I call death benefits, mm-hmm. you know, mm. that would probably be the more preferred option. Mm. Uh, not necessarily the, the option that was sold more, but the, from a consumer perspective, a more preferred option. Correct. Um, over the years, I think more and more people have been looking for what I call life benefits. So mm. benefits that you can enjoy you know, while you're still alive, I have life, for yeah. insurance product, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, it's your car breaking down and you get service or, you know, if your flight is delayed and then you get benefits from travel insurance. So similarly, they are looking at returns on their insurance products, um, you know, before they move on. They're not just looking to pass a legacy to their children. Mm-hmm. So because of that, there has been an increasing demand from uh, investment link products. And I think that as long as the insurance companies themselves are, are, are dealing honestly mm-hmm. and uh, you know, making reasonable projections in terms of the returns, then mm. the sustainability of these products can be handled. 
And uh, so, so no issue with uh, buying them. You know, you just got to know what is it that you are looking for. Understand. In terms of uh, pure term, uh, term plan kind of products, uh, either Ethica or other insurers, versus that of an investment link, which one is in a way more profitable or more sustainable to the insurer? Uh, well, of course, there are a lot of factors driving okay. this. You know, it's about you know how much you're going to park into your par fund, and how much fees that you charge and all that. Mm. Uh, in general, you know what you can say is for investment link products, you earn that fee income, and mm. once you earn that fee income, you know it, it's in your pocket. Well, if you're talking about pure insurance products, you know, then that profit that you make, you know, has a lot more uncertainty or rather a, a lot more longer term certainty. So it will depend on when the claim is made. It will depend on the returns you make along the way. So mm. um, over the last, you know, 10 years or so, or even slightly more than that, definitely the big boys in the Malaysian insurance industry have pivoted more towards investment link products because of that upfront certainty and profitability. I see. I see. Okay, great. Because it's very rare. I, every time uh, I want to speak to an underwriter, they also sometimes may not see the big picture because they don't structure the whole product together. So it's it's great that you share your insights on that. Um, Whether it's they don't see it or they don't want to share it. <laughs> yeah, probably they don't want to share it too because you know it's it's the insurance secret sauce, ma. Right, because actuaries are actuaries, you know. Everybody, yeah, I mean, whether it's analysts or whoever, everybody has trade secrets. Correct, 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 correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, MJ, do you have any questions? No, this is way, way above my my pay grade. You know, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 no, I'm not insurance guy. You know, I'm just yeah, yeah. limited experience. Yeah, no, I'm I, I'm just trying to uh try to bring the story out so that people, a lot of consumer today they get a lot of marketing messages from different, different opinions and different, different opinions. And I want to try to like tease out a more fact-based way of looking at insurance and, you know, using data sets rather than just hearsay and opinion. I think that that's where I was trying to get at. Uh. Um, now coming back towards investing, right? And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because when you were giving that BFM talk that I attended, um, I realized uh, it was more uh, related to a very general consumer-based kind of topic. I mean, that was the topic of the day. But based on what you said, you covered shell oil, then you had uh, your staff covered consumer sector, right? What do you think it's the most interesting or the most difficult sector you had to cover in your career so far? Mm. Mm. I've covered a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, the, the things which I haven't covered, I always say I'm, I'm a Sharia analyst, you know, because I never covered uh, tobacco or gaming uh, or telco mm. and banks. So, so these, you know, the, the big sectors, like the banks and the telco, I've never covered them. Uh, but other than that, I have covered almost all the other sectors. You know, we were a small house at that time when we started off. So you really had to one leg kick and, and cover quite a number of sectors. I see. I guess it the most... Complex one, which I covered at some in-depthness was, uh, was the oil and gas sector. Mm. And at that time, it was simpler. Okay. We didn't have that many listed companies. It was the boom time of the uh, SCOMI Marines oh. and the uh, Tanjung Offshores. You know? so the just 90s, where, right? Uh, no, the, the early, early 2000s, 2000s, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So you got all these um, 
vessel owners coming onto the market, you know, some of the basic rigs coming onto the market. And uh, a lot of things you have to learn from scratch. They were technical. You couldn't go touch and feel. Uh, so a lot of times you had to depend upon management guidance. And mm. uh, I think a lot of analysts, they uh, struggled in the area. That, that was a slight advantage for me because I came from engineering background. Mm. Uh, but even then, you know, it was only a slight advantage. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. I know it's a little bit annoying, but I want to tell you something that I think can be really helpful to you. I can tell you're really interested in the stock market and want to learn more about it so that you actually know what you're doing, especially when today things are getting more complex and complicated. That's why we came up with the Stock Investing Blueprint or SIB. It's our signature e-learning program that teaches you how to pick the right stocks most of the time, buy and sell it at the best possible time and manage your stock portfolio systematically. It currently has more than 10 hours of content and it's growing. You'll also be part of a group of like-minded investors that can help speed up your learning process. To hop on the program, click on the link in the description or go to learn.viral.co slash courses slash SIB. Yeah. Um, interesting that uh, you, because the, the it's actually a leading question towards your research methodology because uh, consumer sectors, uh, it's very easy. You can do a survey. Uh, you can you can read a lot of, um, it's, 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 a, it's an easy touch and feel, but when it comes to even manufacturing, sometimes if you don't get access to the plant, you don't understand it's a B2B business, right? How do you go about doing your research and secondly is there any practices that a retail investor that may not have access to this kind of uh, resources what 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 can they do yeah i guess the second question is the the more important one for you yeah audience. yeah and uh, i would still say you know you need to do a lot of reading um and try and go out i mean if you're really keen on uh, going big on some of these sectors, there's a little bit harder to touch and feel. You do need to build up your network. Mm. You know? So if you're keen on oil and gas stocks, uh, it, it doesn't hurt to, to buy some drinks you know, for your oil <laughs> and gas friends in the industry and just kind of, uh, of course, they may not know specifics on the company, mm. but you want to ask them some of the technology questions or some of the industry questions. You know, um, Yeah, like, even things like, you know, is it possible to demobilize uh, rigs in the next five years, you know, or, mm. or uh, what's the difference between an anchor handling tug and a fast supply vessel, you know, mm. so simple questions like that, which they yes. can answer. And then, um, yeah, just, just read out a lot on uh, what's happening in the industry, maybe get hold of some of the uh, trade publications as well. Uh, I think that that's a good one, especially the last part about trade publications. Uh, uh, because a lot of people read a lot of financial reports, but then they miss mm. out on industry uh, publications that actually help them get a mental model of the business. Yeah, actually, what are some of your favorite uh, when it comes to <clears throat> trade publications for the for the field of research that you've engaged with? Yeah, I guess uh, you know, for oil and gas, I did read the oil and gas journal. Um, mm. And then I did follow EI, both EIA and IEA uh, quite closely. Mm. Um, 
in, you know, I used to cover timber. So ah. that, that's kind of a rare sector nowadays. But, you know, we had things like Malaysian Timber Council, Sarawak Timber Report, um, you know, shipping and aviation. Actually, there's a lot of magazines out there for shipping aviation. But of course, the, uh, uh, the stocks where you can invest in aviation is always difficult, you know, and shipping <laughs> is a bit limited. So I'm not sure how much effort you want to put into them. But definitely, uh, if you're looking at transport stocks, particularly, you know, trade publications are very, very important. Mm, mm, that's, that's a very good tip right there. Um, maybe the next question I would ask in regards to research. Uh, do you think that uh, you guys in, in a way high finance, having corporate access, do you think it's a very, very big unfair advantage compared to the retail investor? I guess it depends on what you invest in. You know, so mm. if you're talking about small cap stocks, uh, it is somewhat unfair. Mm. Uh, because you know, a lot of these are owner-driven mm. and that access to the owner uh, does give you a bit of an insight. You know, that's mm. why you know, listening to guys like you, I think that, that makes a lot of difference because you, you have uh, some of that access as well. And if you share, you know, if you're able to, to get insight into what the owners are thinking about, you know, it does make quite a bit of a difference. But that can be overcome mm -hmm. by following up closely uh, on their stories. You know, so whether it is uh, some sort of a public figure with a social media account or, you know, because they do meet other people who write about them mm. and put that information out, then that retail investor needs to go and follow up on these. I see. For the bigger cap stocks, of course, they, they, they make much less of a difference uh, whether or not you have access to the management. Yeah, I think well, that's a very good insight as well because, um, but ironically, it's the opposite. You know, The smaller cap guys don't want people to meet them. <laughs> Whereas the bigger cap guys understand the importance of IR and all that kind of thing. How, how do you think it's very different? I mean, you've been to Singapore, but obviously not in the capacity of uh, equities research. But, do you see uh, other countries placing a better or more importance in IR compared to Malaysia? And does it help the investing community actually? Um, well, I, used to, I used to be an airline analyst as well. So I oh, yeah, yeah. So, come, yeah. Uh, so um, very different, I think, uh, when you look at, um, you know, let's say like the bigger cap Singapore stocks. Now, it doesn't mean that it's bigger cap worldwide because Cathay doesn't see analysts, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think they only see analysts twice a year. Yeah. But uh, SIA is very investor relation friendly. Um, mm. And most of the big cap Singapore stocks, they're also very transparent. The, uh, the reports they put out, even the quarterly uh, announcements that they put out are very comprehensive. Mm. And they don't, you know, if you really ask them, if you ask them anything that's in the report, they will tell you to refer to the report. Mm. Uh, you ask them anything that's not in the report, they, they you know, they generally won't share because they, they're very um, big and focused on making and uh, very transparent. Everybody gets the same amount of information. I see. Small cap Singapore stocks are somewhat similar to mm -hmm. uh, Malaysian stocks, I would say. And the difference between the two markets is, uh, at least when, when I still used to look at uh, Singapore market about you know, five, six years ago, is that they don't really have much in terms of the mid-cap space. Mm. You know, so in terms of structurally, the market is not too different from Malaysia, dominated by a few big caps, many small caps, and uh, lacking a bit in the mid-cap space. Uh, it used to be that Singapore lacked even more 
than Malaysia mm. in terms of the mid cap space. Mm. Okay. Um, do you think what would what do you think would be an incentive or an encouragement for small cap stocks to actually uh, be more uh, how would I say transparent uh, and and a bit more color in their disclosure because you know as you rightly pointed out in my in, in my uh, years of uh, reading annual reports, some reports just completely turn me off <laughs> because it's like, what what are you trying to say? It's like you're going around in circles, you know, it's, it's very corporate speak and I don't get that kind of disclosure. But at the same time, when you ask them at the AGM and uh, uh, avenues where you can actually have access to the to the management, they don't want to share. And, and, and you question yourself, why should you invest? But at the same time, you see good numbers, good fundamentals, but they just don't want to share those. What, what do you think would encourage these owners to be more transparent, actually? I guess, well, I mean, the, the, the easiest way to convince them is to show that, you know, if you could pick two companies, one that didn't want to share and one that shared and show them, you know, over the 10-year the period, the, mm. you know, and say that, look, look at the share price performance, uh, look at the PE multiples because really that that's the main differential, Correct. right? I mean, we are familiar with the market. People like yeah. you. It's the PE multiples that are going to expand, and uh, be very numbers oriented and show this to them. You know because they are mm. they are owners. Yeah. You know so if they're going to own like twenty to to sixty percent of the companies, what they want to see is the value in their stock increase. Mm. It, you know, there's no point saying, oh, okay, I'm going to take you on a roadshow. You get to go to <laughs> Hong Kong or London and see all these people. You know. That one time maybe you can get into it. <laughs> the second time, it's the dollars and cents. So, so I don't think, I think people like Bursa and Mira, they've done a good job in having all these forums where the companies get to talk about themselves. Mm. Uh, but I'm not sure whether, you know, that effort has really uh, been put into graphs and charts and tables and just sit down with the owners and say, you know, if you do this, this is what you get. Mm. Mm. They should make you president of Mira, Chris. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> okay. Um, next, in, in your years and many more years of being in the industry, uh, what do you think is lacking in either the buy side or the sell side? Or, and what are the commonalities that you, that you think can be further improved? to up the game of, uh, you know, our financial services sector, or fi financial analysis or equities analysis sector, actually? Well, I guess the buy side, um, what's glaring, I think, in terms of what can be improved at the moment is mm -hmm. activism. Mm. So, you know, you have a few of the, the big glicks and, uh, of course, they've, they've taken a much more active role nowadays. But the asset management companies, the insurance companies, you know, they, they, they shy away from all these things. Mm. And I think that uh, having more activist investors will improve the quality of the market as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, I think on the people there, you know, it's a bit unfair to, to generalize it. But I mm. think that uh, my side teams could be more curious about mm the companies that they invest in. As you mentioned, you know, it's a lot of times desktop analysis and you can't really blame the buy side for that because they've got such a wide portfolio to look after. Correct. But I think that if they are increasing their holdings for a few particular investments, they should be a bit more curious about what they do, what is the industry trend that's happening. And um, 
you know, even if it's not directly relevant to the share price immediately, but could be relevant in a couple of years' time, you know, mm. sometimes there is a lack of curiosity on such developments on the buy side. Mm. Mm. On the sell side, I guess what I've noticed is uh, because the pressures are there for ever uh, rapid response mm. to developments, um, the, the reports have tended to get shorter. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, nowadays, there are hardly any very in-depth kind of reports that is useful mm. uh, three months down the line from publication. Mm. Very so, thematic, so, la. very on the moment yeah. kind of reports because yeah, pressure yeah. to produce, right? Some news has come out, you put out a one pager, you know, mm. and then another company news come out, you put out a one pager. But what about, uh, you know, what's happening in the industry that, you know, it, it's something that you can make a big bet on. Mm. So, so what I'm saying is that, you know, you get all these reports where, you know, somebody can buy, like, use it to buy 0.01% of the company mm -hmm. and you make money, you know, mm. you make whatever, like 5%, 8%. Where, where is the report that you can use this to buy 10% of a company and make a multi-bagger? Mm. You know, those reports are, because of the pressures nowadays, it's uh, you know, so much information flow. Those mm. reports are a little bit lacking. Yeah. Actually, I, I'll share something personal uh, based on my experience after what, what you said. It's so true. Every time I open an analyst report, uh, I look at the number of pages first. If it's one page, uh, I turn off. I straight away, I, it's probably going to tell me what I'm really going to read in the news, right? But mm. what I love to read are what we call initiating reports. So initiating and, and some reports, you know, uh, I, I enjoy reading yours. I enjoy reading uh, another guy, Raymond Yap of uh, CIB mm. because it's usually very long. But the problem is sometimes when it goes to 100 pages or so, I struggle to finish yeah. it. Because, <laughs> yeah. So I... I guess, is it because of the lack of resources you guys have? In a way, your teams could be bigger. No, is, no. is that not? The it's just that, I mean, the, the way it's structured, right? So, um, you know, it's a chicken and egg situation. Mm. Let's say when you have less, when you have pressured fund managers mm. who don't have that much time to dedicate uh, to individual sectors or companies and therefore they are less curious hmm. they are not going to be the one that you know reading that 100 page report and then hmm. the the sales side analysts just react to the where the demand has shifted ah. so okay. if the the focus of um, an asset owner is on regular returns but on a short-term horizon so you're hmm. going to be measured on a week on a month, on a quarter at most performance, mm. then nobody is really saying that, okay, let me take, you know, one day to dive into something that could be a multi-bagger two years down the line because mm. who knows, they may not be there. Yeah. That's <laughs> so true. That's so true. So I think family-owned funds, mm -hmm. uh, that could be interesting. And, mm. uh, you know, but I'm not sure how many sales sites uh, cater for family-owned funds. Actually, this I, ironically, I mean, I I have only a very short experience in this industry, Chris. But I see a lot of it are popping up because I think they understand the struggles of uh big insti, uh the pressures that you mentioned, uh, and also in terms of holding period because I think there's always pressure from external shareholders or fund holders on returns especially short-term returns. Uh. And uh, I'm yeah. going to come back to that later. Uh, but I want to peel back a little bit 
more about activism and I don't know whether MJ wants to chip in with me on this. You know, we've got we've got activist investors like Carl Ickerhan, uh, like, uh, you know, Elliot Management, go in straight away, demand board seat bank table, right? And then you've got the European guys who, you know, go in and they help out operationally and they try to steer the company better, you know, companies like Hanneken and all that. Where do you see activists, where do you see a, a, a good way of activism in uh, activist investor in Malaysia, and maybe is that something uh, that the insti big guys like EPF or Coop can actually institute? Because these are the only guys that have the bullets, you know. <laughs> you talk about yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? I guess um, Coop used to be quite activist, you mm. know. Like I say, I, I've not been actively involved in the market over the last uh, two or three years. Mm. So can't uh, can't say that much, but yeah, I used to be they used to be very activist in uh, for uh, issues of governance, mm. issues of uh, transparency, and then of course uh, EPF has really come along and championed the ESG agenda, which I'm quite happy uh, about, you know, because mm. I, I I like to champion that agenda as well. <laughs> um, so I think in the short term, really, what we are seeing is there will be more activism just on the ESG agenda, if nothing else. I think Malaysian investors still not so keen to interfere in management. Mm. Um, I think if it's not a scandal or a governance issue, they will still trust management. Or if they feel that you know management is suspect, then they will just uh, exit rather than to, to, to get too to involved. Take, take on the fight. Lah. Yeah, I mean... Mm. Uh, it's heartening because I was studying a few corporate proposals or, or resolutions that were actually voted down most recently. And I think KNM was a good example because uh, they voted down the, I don't know how many, I lost count of how many rights issues and private placements they were going up. <laughs> yeah, it, it's heartening to know. So because I see like uh, EPF voting down certain director's salary or certain resolution. Uh, so it's good because... I feel that the struggle for the retail investor is really knowing their rights as well. I don't know whether you agree with me or not. They don't know their rights as a shareholder and they don't know whether how they, they can vote or how they can participate in actually corporate governance. I, am I correct to say this? Yeah, yeah. I think the uh, a lot of times, you know, I mean, different markets are in different stages of uh, evolution. I think mm. the Malaysian market has still not reached the full maturity yet. Mm. So it's good as they see more of such news, they say, oh, okay, yeah, that's we can actually do that. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, they can come in to be stronger on the activist side to ensure proper governance. Yeah. What, what is your take on privatization? And, you know, there's this, uh, there's this phrase in the industry, um, it's unfair but reasonable. <laughs> I don't know if you heard of this. They read a yeah, right, yeah, written report. Common, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's unfair but reasonable. What What's your take on that, Chris? Well, I guess, you know, I, I don't really have a strong view on the privatization. I think, um, you know, in most cases, it won't happen unless, of course, there is money to be made by the one doing the privatization. Mm. Otherwise, mm. why bother? Isn't it? I mean, you got to pay fees and, go through this lengthy process and all that. Uh, but then again, you know, the, the ones doing the privatization, they would naturally have that longer waiting period. Mm. Uh, I think the, the only clear-cut example I can remember that left a little bit of a sour taste was a, a telco company mm. that was privatized. Uh, yes, the offer price given was higher than their 
trading price. But then six months later, you know, it was a large chunk of it was sold to a foreign investor at a significant premium as well. And um, ah. I think even uh, Busa was not too happy la, at that development. La. Other than that, usually, you know, if nothing major happens within six months, the usually the corporate proposal only turns out, you know, after that nine months, one year. I mean, if you're a retail investor, you may not want to wait that long anyway. Mm, so, correct. okay. La. Okay. Um, moving on from activism to short selling. And uh, I think MJ, he, he gave a very interesting perspective to me before. He said, short selling actually sometimes does a more efficient job than uh, the uh, regulators because in a way, it punishes companies that are fraudulent uh, that sometimes the regulator may struggle to, what do you call it, to discipline. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on short selling and is Malaysia actually ready for short selling? Um, well, I think it definitely adds vibrancy to a market. You know, I'm a long-term fundamentalist. So I, long I, long I only. Guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, long only. But, you know, I think different people enter the market for different reasons and uh, to not have short selling definitely remove some sort of uh, excitement from a market. So, so, yeah, I'm all for it. Uh, I don't practice it, but I don't think that uh, markets should operate without short selling. Mm, great, great. Um, now moving on to some of your uh, horror stories and some of the good stories of uh, uh, stocks that you've covered. So maybe I'll start with the good ones first. Have you covered a stock that was probably at its trough, you know, at its doldrums, small cap, and then management actually implemented change in a turnaround and you've seen it grow into a multi-bagger. Probably take us through some of that. Uh, have, have you gone through that? You know, people just brush them off already. It's like already in a dumpster. And then you covered them. You felt that, you know, they, they could have, they, they are on a, a path to, to, to a better place. And have you gone through those before? I guess to say major turnaround, um, no, actually. No, I haven't. Oh. You know, what I have a lot of experience of is companies that nobody knew ah. or nobody cared about. And mm. then, you know, we, we went in, you know, because we were a small cap specialist, right? So we spotted them early and then we nurtured them uh, and, and they really proved themselves to mm. uh, do great. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, all the glove stocks, well, okay, I wouldn't say all the glove stocks, but the big four, mm -hmm. you know, at, at one point or the other, you know, nobody nobody was looking at them. You know, mm -hmm. we were we were among the first, definitely Kosan, we were a big early promoter, um, you know, not, of course, you know, the other three as well. But they they have they have proven our trust uh, by you know really making that growth and returning um, you know very decent returns to to investors. Then other small cap stocks that uh, also you know when we first looked at them they were unproven they were not loved and then we we grew them. Hmm. I think the only one that really comes close to what you are describing for me like, on my personal mm -hmm. experience would mm -hmm. be uh, Yinsen. Mm. Yinsen, you know because they shifted business. Uh, from their traditional business. So there was a lot of uh, skepticism, uh, myself included. You know, I mm. was very skeptical. And I would say that they they proven me my earlier doubts wrong la, because they, yeah. they have really done well since then. Yeah, yeah. YC. Uh. CY or YC? CY, CY. CY, CY. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I'm trying to get him on the podcast. He's very media shy. Mm, very nice apparently. guy. 
yeah, yeah, but he's very media nice shy. Man, man. <laughs> yeah. And uh the Yinsen is the second time in this month with you know this month, yeah. Second yeah, time yeah, in this month, yeah. This month yeah. that uh, someone has actually mentioned. Uh share a little bit of your horror stories. Any any com- <laughs> any of these small companies you they promise you the stars and the sky, you know, and the moon, and then you know, it just like didn't turn out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I used to be a timber analyst. So. <laughs> <laughs> Did they bring you to their timber the, timber logging areas or not? Yeah, well, you know, we, we were supposed to to do the flyover, but then weather was bad, so the I helicopter see. couldn't take off. Yeah, but ma- many, lah. unfortunately, you know, I, I definitely don't want to say all, you know, mm. but many in the uh, timber industry and, and uh, the downstream as well, you know, whether it's the plywood or whether it's the furniture have... Um, made promises in the past that were quite difficult to, to achieve. Mm. Um, so, you know, when I first started out as an analyst, um, there was all this talk about, you know, FSC, Forest Stewardship Council. Uh. Uh, and, you know, if you were FSC certified, uh, you know, your, your timber um, or your plywood or your paper okay. would be able to get much higher prices and then they would be able to get uh, all these valuers to go in and value their, their acreage at quite high prices like which you know at the end of the day never panned out because whether it was intentional or it was um, naivety mm-hmm. but the ability to extract timber and still mm-hmm. maintain your FSC certificate uh, was much lower than you know the potential value if you were to clear cut that piece of land mm-hmm. so the valuers may have value on a 100% clear cut but to maintain the FSC, you know, the extraction was hardly anything there. So I see. Yeah. So a lot of horror stories on that side. Um, other really horror stories. No, <laughs> I, I guess I've been spared the, uh, the trouble. You know, we, we never managed to cover uh, some of the, the companies such as Transmile. Um, mm. You know, before we started coverage, you know, something happened. So, so we, we never <laughs> went that direction like, again. I say blessings like, in these guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what would be, I mean, seeing all this, right? Uh, what would you give advice to uh, retail investor? What would be the main, main red flags that may be very obvious oh, to you? Oh, yes, yes. I have my favorite uh, ah, tip, please. Uh, the, the, the first one, you know, which has held so far, but I can't say it will hold on forever, uh-huh. uh, is that if you're looking at an oil and gas project in Malaysia, it should have Petronas participation. Mm. Uh, so oil and gas project in Malaysia that doesn't have Petronas participation, you have to be skeptical. Okay. So for example, so we look at the Trans Peninsula pipeline, you know, mm. lots of headlines, whatever. Uh, what is it, 20, 30 years down the line, it's still not built yet. <laughs> uh, the Asia Petroleum Hub offshore of, uh, you know, what is now the port of Tanjung Pelepas, you know, mm. still not a, a, a real success story. Uh, so oil and gas, lah. So, so you want oil and gas in Malaysia and uh, it should have some Petronas participation, whether it's a client, whether it's a, a shareholder, that sort of thing. Otherwise, you, you just take a little bit of caution. Okay. Uh, the other one is uh, if you know that a company has used mm-hmm. company money mm-hmm. to buy a yacht, uh, then you know that's a big question mark as well. You know, the, the owner they can buy their own yacht, you know, they can mm. buy their own jet. Mm. But in Malaysia, if it's a listed company and you buy a yacht or you buy a private jet, 
uh, unless you are in the aviation industry, like, you know, that's a that's a big question mark as well. Mm. So, uh, and then usually if it's one generation doing one business, and then the second generation takes it into a totally different business, mm. again that's a big question mark. Like, the exception I say is Yinsen, like, you know, Yinsen yes. really, you know, it it, uh, it surprised me, and, and I think it continues to surprise the market. Yeah. Uh, if you were to look at maybe uh, accounting, uh, accounting from an accounting perspective, right? Uh, there was a survey done in the US and they said that revenue and net profit are the two easiest or the two most popular numbers to fry, like, you know, in the scandals of WorldCom. And in Malaysia, have you seen any unique accounting tricks that they have done? that, you know, were buried or hidden in the notes or something that, you know, just surprised you, something on the balance sheet or something. I mean, share, share with us if you have any experience on that. Uh, but I'm not an accountant, you know, so <laughs> I must say that uh, my, my expertise there is limited. Mm. But usually Malaysians are, are not so creative. La. Usually it's always <laughs> ballooning the accounts receivable. Ah. <laughs> that is the main, the main in Malaysia, you know. Things so the usual up, suspect. Coffee la. go up, yeah, yeah, and then your accounts receivable also go up faster than... That's a big question mark. Okay, okay, great, great. So it's uh, it's the usual suspect. It's good to hear. Um, share with uh, us, uh, what, which management uh, of a public listed company in Malaysia that you admire and what are the traits that you see similar to probably perhaps as good or great companies uh, uh, within, within different sectors as well? Well, my, my biggest, uh, I'm, I've been a fan, they know it. Uh, you know, I've talked about it for so many times. It's a QL and a dialogue. Oh. So I uh, continue to be a fan of these two companies, uh, QL Resources and uh, Dialogue Group. Um, you know, I think that the story is good. You know, so QL, of course, uh, you know, Freddie. Have you had Freddie on the show? I'm trying to bring him. Actually, oh, I want okay. to bring Dr. Chia and, and uh, Likai. Because Likai, ah, okay. the first time yeah, I yeah. saw his face before he had it, uh, on, on the annual report that is uh, headed family mart he had less white hair but as years progress <laughs> I see it, it's like totally turned white so I don't know whether if I call him on the podcast he'll be more stressed <laughs> yeah so please continue QL and dialogue yeah I mean QL the, the story is great you know they always say that uh, you know we supply um, uh, which one comes first uh? we supply eggs Surimi so first. everybody needs to yeah eggs. i guess surimi first lah, right yeah. so, so everybody needs to eat needs to eat fish ball but then if there's red tide so you can't catch fish then you can eat eggs you know <laughs> then if there's bird flu you still need cooking oil so we've got palm oil so you cover all the basic food groups almost and then uh, you know it's a uh, it's a recession resilient stock mm. so even if things downturn you still need to eat this stuff and then if things turn up again you know they can always try to ramp up their catches of sleeper lobsters and uh, <laughs> go for the luxury market. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, I'm a big fan of Family Mart. So mm. when they first went there, I was quite excited. Mm. Um, and, you know, if not for the COVID, I guess they would have turned profitable. It would have been the fourth leg of profit generation. Um, you know, it's a very conservative management. And mm. yet they have managed to build up a second generation to take it forward. Now. So, mm. In terms of numbers, in terms of management, in terms of industry sector, you know, they've got all kinds of pistons firing. Mm, and mm. it's not to say that they haven't made their mistakes as well. You know, they, they've had uh, exploration in uh, producing, I think it was like biomass, wood chips, uh, which didn't work, you know, mm. but then they quickly managed to uh, 
say that, okay, this is not working out for us. So let's move on from this and, and venture into a new business. So it's a company that in a way is uh, tested. Uh, mm. you know, so they've had their failures, but they've managed to recover from that. So big fan of such companies, mm. uh, as long as they're able to successfully transition to the second generation, the, uh, the outlook is still very bright. Mm. Um, similar to dialogue, you know, so uh, Tan Sui Ngao, of course, built up the company, you know, and uh, as investors, we, we always meet with uh, Mr. Chiu. Yeah. And uh, then now, of course, the second generation Ngao's are there. Uh, Su is there, you know, yeah. and then the, the Tan Sri Sun is there and also see them continuing to move ahead. Um, and they have uh, also, you know, they always talk about their hospital suite of services. Mm. So they've built up that regular cash flow sustaining business of all these uh, oil tanker uh, farms. And then they still have that kind of expertise in uh, all their technical services. And, and that's yes. quite important. Uh, I think that a company needs to have a passion area. You know, it yes. may not be the area that makes the most money uh, for them, you know, but they still need to have, take some pride in some of the things they do. Yeah. Uh, that will be for future innovation. Correct. Correct. The only qualm I have with dialogue, Chris, I mean, just sharing from my perspective is uh, Tan Sui Ngao is very secretive on <laughs> the numbers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so every time I ask him about, you know, uh, revenue segment information, right? I always get shut off, lah, regardless of which the angle I go. You know, uh, I was very privileged because uh, Chong Chong Wee. Ah, yes, yes. Yes. Mm. So he walked he up to me. meet people, you know, most yeah, of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can see a lot of passion uh, he has mm. for steering, especially the EPCC business. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel that, you know, what I wish, uh, my wish list for dialogue is that a little bit more transparency. I know he's fearful of uh, competitors reverse engineering his margins and all that, but at least it gives um, investors some sort of a color and the business model and what are the struggles? Uh, because we just don't want to listen to the entire nice story only, you know. You want to, you sh- in a way, share that jerder- bird journey of burden with them so that you know they are also you know they are fallible as well <laughs> in a way true true fully agree fully agree yeah. i think that you know if they were a bit more transparent that um very high pe multiple could be even higher like, correct, and, correct, uh, correct less volatile less volatile yes. yeah yeah it, it, I, I, and uh, a lot of times uh, i mean i've been a big fan of dialogue ever since it uh, it made multiples for my parents portfolio but when I got in, and I, I made money for my parents, but then when I got in, I'm like, eh, how come not moving? Uh? Three years already. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit like, mm, is it re- re- related to the transparency or is it related to the headwinds in the oil and gas sector? Yeah. ESG and all that. Yeah. yeah, especially ESG. Correct, correct. MG, sorry, you got any yeah, questions? Yeah, I do have one. Actually, uh, since a lot of your time is spent on analyzing small caps, right? So... What are some of the things that, based on your experience, um, the commonalities that you see in these small caps that ended up becoming mid caps or even large caps? That you know. Yeah, I guess those companies that have, uh, you know, I follow for many years and they have succeeded. So um, you know, the top gloves, the cosans. The uh, and, and you know, uh, Nato Stanley will kill me if I don't mention Supermax, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, QLs, the the uh, dialogues, who else are the success stories? I would say KPJ, you know, KPJ was mm. uh, was one of them early. I think it's uh, 
kind of faltered along the way since yeah. uh, management turnover. Mm. Uh, but in the early days, you know, in the previous management under uh, Dato Paduka, you know, yeah. he was really doing well with Elvin there as well. Um, the, the main commonality I say about this company is passion. You know? so, mm. so that's why I said you, you do have a, maybe a slight advantage as an institutional investor where you get to meet this management and you get to hear them talk in a more casual setting uh, away mm. from their AGMs, you know? uh, maybe over dinner and that sort of thing or lunch. And that passion really came across. Uh, these were people who, um, who wanted to grow the business um, there were there were key reasons why they founded it, why they grew it, you know. And I mean, like when you talk to uh, Dr. Chia, he talks about QL and wanting to give back to uh, the the whole family and the society, you know, because he had made it uh, in the education, and then his brothers, you know, were still there, so he wanted yeah. to bring that wealth back for sharing, and that's in their name as well, isn't it? Mm. And uh, when when you first talk to people like um, you know in the earlier days in KPJ, Dato Padu, uh, Paduka and Elvin, you know, they were saying that. Really, they felt that Malaysian healthcare, you know, there was so much potential and uh, you could just, you know, if you, if you got the details right, you go in, you buy a hospital or you set up a hospital within three years, you can actually turn it around and then uh, bring so much better healthcare to people in the remote areas. So when, when companies like that, when they start talking then about, um, you know, just asset acquisition, Mm. And they start talking mm. about, you know, how their balance sheet will improve or how their profits improve. Then those are warning flags uh, because mm. they've moved away from that passion and it just becomes a numbers game. Mm. Then to me, usually, usually it's, a, it's a, a lot of question marks. I mean, that I had my favorite oil and gas company, you know, when I first met them, um, and, and I won't talk about their name, but I think you can mm. roughly guess like, who it is. Mm. But when I first met them, you know, we went for a tour in the office and mm. I usually tell people this story now. So the MD was taking us around and the lift opened up mm. and uh, you know, we could see there was this long corridor like, in front of us. It was their engineering floor. Mm. So both sides, you all these young engineers, you know, their tables are covered with engineering diagrams and charts and all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. And you could see like maybe it's about 100, you know, okay, maybe about 80 meters in front of you. Right at the end, there's an older gentleman mm. scolding a young engineer. Okay. So, you know, so the MD is like, okay, you know, see, this is what we do. These AutoCAD machines and all these kind of things. So we're walking towards the end of the corridor. And uh, because that, that argument or, or scolding is so heated, they don't notice, you know, the MD is bringing <laughs> us these so seven analysts, you know, walking, getting closer and closer. So when we get close enough, then you, you, you can sort of hear the conversation. Now. It's like, how can you do this? Uh, you know, where's the pride in your work? You know, when we do something like this, is wow. got to be correct. You know, you don't just send this thing out to a client and all that. So I was like, oh, you know, this is a serious business. Yes. And we were like five feet away. Suddenly he looks up and oh, because it's MD. He says, got this bunch of visitors, you know. <laughs> so then and he said, oh, this is our head of engineering. <laughs> okay. Wow. You know, this company is something worth looking at. And, mm. uh, and indeed, you know, they had this four or five year run of uh, great results, you know. And then after that, and when they used to give briefings, you know, they said, oh, this is our patented technology. You know, this is mm. the next thing that we're going to look at. This is what our engineers are doing. After a while, it became like, okay, we're going to buy this asset, you know, and then it's going to add how many manufacturing capacity. Mm. Or we're going to buy that and then our bottom line is going to go up 15%. The, the passion just went, you know, then it's like red flag, red flag. <laughs> ah, okay, okay, okay. I, I'm just, you know, my mind is going in all directions. Now. How... how can a retail investor 
actually somewhat detect that passion without access, you see? I mean, mm. the only avenues he has is probably an AGM or an EGM. Um, mm. What other ways? Uh, I mean, I, I think I've asked this question, but what, what, what other ways do you think you can advise an investor? I would still say to follow their story quite closely. I mean, mm. reading papers and all that, um, okay, la. I mean, it's not going to be the same, you know, but yeah. you do get an inkling of these things, you know, follow the... Uh, whatever information you sources you can get nah, from these companies. Nah. Uh, mm. it, it, let's say it's not as easy, but you still tend to be able to get an inkling. Nah. And, and really, you want to read between the lines. You know? mm. So a lot of times what happens is that investors, right? unfortunately, because what do they do? They're they here to make money, the mm. most important thing. Uh, journalists are out there to sell stories. <laughs> so they will tend to write about the things that... Um, the big news, you know, like, mm. oh, okay, uh, the company say their profit is going to grow 20%, that kind of thing. But you want to read the subtitles. You mm. want to read further on in that article to try to get that gleanings, if you can, from what mm. makes these people tick. Understand, understand. Great advice. MJ, any more questions? No, I think that, I think I would say that of all our podcasts, that was one of the best, uh, uh, answers that we've gotten in terms exactly. of I'm, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I I've yeah. already so many nuggets. I I don't know whether Chris noticed I was typing as you were answering. I was like typing. Okay, more <laughs> questions to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe uh, maybe I, I just share about one more company. Please, please, more you know, companies even I better. Think, I tell um, you, the audience will love it. <laughs> again, you know, it's like it's like Vitrox lah. You know, mm. Vitrox also um. You know, one of my favorites uh, and done really, really well as well. Mm. And what makes this company work, right? Which, you know, I think they're, they're quite transparent about it. I think, yeah, I think that the H just had a big time article on that, which I haven't read, you know, but, but mm. when, I, um, when I first encountered Vitrox, um, and, uh, okay, uh, uh, disclaimer here, I own no Vitrox shares, you know, so, <laughs> so I can say this and, and why is because I'm a bit late to the game. Lah, so mm-hmm. that's why I thought I didn't buy. Yeah. But, um, you know, when I first encountered Vitrox, the, the company had uh, already done fairly well, the share mm. price. Mm. And I think I got a lot of advice from analysts saying that, yeah, you know, this is in that, that OSAT space. Uh, they do testing equipment and all that, you know, so I thought, hey, Penang nowadays got so many of these companies. Uh, what makes yeah. this one different? Mm. So, so we did a tour of their company and then we, we met the two, the two guys, nah, the two heads, nah, right? So we yeah. got the founder and he's the engineer, you know, he's like sorting out all these technical aspects and he has that passion as well. Yeah. Um, and then we have the marketing guy, you know, which is like covers all the engagement with clients and all that. So they really jive well together. Mm. And because of that, um, that, that persona, lah, the company persona that they give to investors, you can see that, you know, even if the numbers, right, are moving in the same trajectory as some of the peers, the PE yeah. multiple is just expanded so much faster than that. Correct. Peers. So yeah. it's quite important, uh, you know, for companies to have the right people doing investor relations. Mm. So whether or not it is the MD or the head of finance or investor relations head, uh, if you get the right person there, which balances being transparent to uh, the, the investing public, uh, sharing uh, the right amount of information and also willing to share if things 
go wrong so that mm. people say that okay i can trust this company in the longer term yeah uh then really you will see that pe multiple increase very significantly yeah and speaking about pe multiple and uh, just just a story that i share from a third party uh, the ceo of vitrox washes his own plates uh, after lunch mm. i don't know whether mm. you noticed <laughs> yeah. i didn't know that i didn't know that yeah. yeah so they have this policy in the factory where um once you once you finish your meal in the cafeteria, you actually clean up on your own. So there's so that mm. that kind of uh, equality. Uh, so already speaks volume of the uh, value sets that he embodies. Uh. And uh, mm. I was very privileged to meet him a few times. But one thing that really caught me was that his interview process, uh, Chris. I don't know if you have heard this from him. Prior to the being so big, he 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 interviews every single staff. That mm. means they have a few layers right till the mm. end, right? He will still have the final interview and the final say to maintain that kind of culture. I don't know whether he still practices that today, but if he does, then kudos to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. With regards to PE multiple, right? Here, here's this perennial question that MJ and I always gets asked. And I, as an investor, both in an overseas market and in Malaysia, and I'm very a big fan, you know, both of us are electrical engineers. So everything tech, uh, I just zone in one, you know, it's just like, so... Here you have a company like Vitrox trading at a PE multiple of what, 70, 80, sometimes even close to 100. Mm. And then you've got a world leader in wafer fabrication like TSMC trading at a multiple of 32. Do you think that discrepancy in PE is justified? Uh? And why do you think so in Malaysia? Well, I guess TSMC is, um, you know, it is really ahead of its game. Uh. So, so they have both the size and the you know, strength behind them and yet they are on that cutting edge. Very hard to maintain. Uh. So mm-hmm. to me, 30 overtime PE already is very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vitrox, I guess what they have is, you know, it's a much smaller company. There's a bit mm-hmm. of scarcity of supply, you know, trading volumes are not that big. And yet when you see them, you know, they, uh, it's not a commodity business. Uh. I think mm-hmm. that, that's the, the thing. Uh. Sometimes some of these OSET players, they are a big commodity business, especially if they are in the testing side of things. Yes. While Vitrox is in the manufacturing of testing equipment where you do need the engineers, you do need the, the, the design skills. Um, if it were to ever approach anything close to, to TSMC size, I, I don't think they can sustain that kind that of... kind of P multiples. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, because there's always this... You know, you can't... As, as, as recent as, you know, during the 2020-2021 run-ups, right? You see companies that do metal stamping like UWC gaining P multiples of 70, you know? And then you, you just question in your head, is, are the valuation multiples justified or are there certain other criteria that investors should be looking at? Should they pay out for premium? Uh? Long to short, uh? should they pay out for mm-hmm. premium, uh? in your opinion? <laughs> To me, the, you know, I want to, to answer that really, you need to see the track record. You know? So mm-hmm. if somebody has got, they used to trade at eight times PE and then suddenly they've gone to like 30 over 40 times over the period of six months, you know, there's a lot of question marks. Uh. But if they've gone to 30 over times um, and then they have sustained that 30 over times PE for you know, 12 months, uh, I think then, you know, it's worth looking at at the 30 over time because there will always be a dip, you know, nobody continuously grows their profit. So there will be a dip. It will come down and, uh, you know, if that PE then compresses to 20 over times, that's really the time to jump in. I see. Okay. You know, to, I, I wrote a report once, you know, like, uh, good stock, not cheap. 
cheap stock not good. <laughs> is it still uh, available? Is it still available publicly? I would love to read it. I'm not sure actually, you know, but but I think, you know, although the 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 way to say cheap stock not good, perhaps not quite correct, you know, it's a bit of clickbait. Lah. But I think the, the first part really, the good stock not cheap, I think that's still very valid. Lah. So when I look at the stock and I say, okay, the PE is so high, to me, it doesn't make, it, it's not a strong factor lah, in my investing decision. If the PE has always been so high, why not? You know, that shows that there's something there that investors can see and value and uh, it's, it's still worth going in if uh, other things make sense. Great, great advice. Actually, great advice. Um, probably uh, the next question I would ask is this. Uh, in your, what are the most difficult times that you have encountered in your entire uh, equities research kind of career and and what advice would you probably give to an analyst or a researcher who is facing that kind of problem actually? Well, I guess I, I'm most reminded by recently the whole gloves, uh, you know, situation, you know, some of them are my ex-staff, mm. um, you know, and uh, when you have to, you know, you, you look at it and you think that the good times can't last la, so mm. long mm. and you are the first or you are among the first to downgrade the stock. And then you get all this negativity coming at you, all the haters uh, nowadays, uh, so many trolls and haters coming at you. I think as a sell-side analyst, those are, those are quite difficult times. Uh. And that's why you tend to see so many buy recalls and neutral calls, especially compared to sell calls. You know, because the, it's very difficult, especially when you're trying to build a long-term relationship with a company to suddenly call sell. Mm. And especially a company that has garnered so much attention and, and so many people have piled in. And you know that, you know, some of these people, they are no longer viewing their investments in a logical manner. And it's become mm. emotional. Yes. That their stock has to go up. You know, there's no way it can't come down. Yeah. Um, so, so I think those are the very challenging aspects faced by all sell-side analysts. And I've also had a few times my own fair share. Uh, but the worst one, I guess, is when really, as an analyst, you've been conned. You know, ah. so you went into the company and you really thought that it was good. And so you wrote this report and then suddenly it goes limit down. So, <laughs> so that is the, you know, the worst thing that can happen to an analyst. And if you've got a good head of research and uh, you know, maybe that can be minimized, but I don't think it can be zero rise. Mm. Uh, even very experienced analysts, uh, uh, you know, end up like this as well. I think recently you have, of course, the, the oil and gas company case, which, uh, you know, I, I don't know because I've never looked at them. I've never met them. But mm -hmm. I think that, you know, as an analyst, you would be in a very uncomfortable position now. <laughs> correct, correct, correct. Especially when it was a buy call and yet all the red flags are coming out right now. Yeah, I actually, ironically, that that, that particular company, uh, when the scandal actually broke up, right, uh, I actually went to look at quite a few analyst reports that were doing the buy call. I just wanted to see the justification uh, in a way. And does it still hold water in, in a way? And what, what were the, not, not, not to judge from a perspective of judging, but more to see what was the rationale in which what they saw based on the information uh, to, to build in a way mental models to help us invest better in the future. Mm, yes, yeah. uh, to prevent, yeah, uh, yeah really to, to invest better in the future. Yes, yes, yes. Um, MJ, sorry, any questions? <laughs> No, no, no questions. Yeah. Um, 
probably one of the last uh, few questions before we wrap up, Chris. And I really and thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, this I, I think there's a lot to glean. Uh, I'm definitely going to rewatch this podcast again. Um, in the future, right? How far along do you think investors should be looking at vision and dreams? Because you see, today certain companies are need to progress. Like you say, second generation, third generation coming in, and then you've got companies like Yinsen that you know completely went in a way, off trajectory, right? How much emphasis does an investor need to look at these future teams and how much weightage and probability that they need to uh, put on it? I mean, like, let's just say a company like Amazon today, we, we can't even recognize it from the, the earlier. I mean, for the lack of a better example, uh, in Malaysia, look at Yinsen. I mean, it's still quite adjacent because it's like transport, but... If you were uh, uh, an investor and then this company came up to you and says, I have this audacious dream of going in this. Yes, it's the, tail, it's the headwind, uh, tailwind. How much of it will you believe in it, actually? How much should you believe in it? <laughs> I guess, you know, as an investor, uh, there is uh. that part about how much you believe in it personally mm. and how much you think the market is going to believe in it. So you are ahead of the market so you can get out before they stop believing in it. <laughs> Uh, so it's a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, I would say that, you know, the investing styles of money that comes to Malaysia and the investing styles of money that is in the US is quite mm. different. Mm. So there, because, you know, it, it is the natural, I think, American psyche and the availability of all this cutting edge technology that if somebody were to come with an audacious dream, mm. they have a higher chance of making that a success mm. as compared to what we unfortunately have in Malaysia. Lah. So uh, that's why the likes of the FANG companies, you know, they trade at such high multiples and yet, you know, there is still so much interest in them. Look at Tesla, you know. Mm. It's going to be very hard to imagine something like Tesla in Malaysia. Mm. So if somebody were to say that, you know, I'm going to be the next Tesla and, and you know, I'm headquartered in Malaysia, a bit hard. Lah. Even if you believe in them, you know, how long do you have to believe in them before the market believes in them? Mm. You know, so there's this whole long gestation period as compared to, you know, what happens in the US. I see. But that being said, you know, we have, of course, the now is the Southeast Asian flavor on mm. uh, Wall Street. So you had C coming on board. You yeah. know, you've got another two big IPOs coming up and uh, things may change. Lah, but... Um, at the moment, I mean, you know, we do do kind of a scanning around. Uh, nothing really knocks my sock off, socks off lah, in terms mm. of what are the potentials in this part of the world. Understand. Now, that being said, you know, they may still be strong performers on a market perspective. Mm. But, you know, it's not really something that you want to go in and then say, I've got a five-year investment horizon. Yeah, nothing along that line. I see. I see. Uh, perhaps the last question for me, and I don't know whether MJ has another one, but in your entire career investing other people's money, do you find it a struggle to invest your own money because of lack of time or because <laughs> of disclosure ruling? You know, I mean, there's, there's this perennial problem, you know, there, there's this very funny interview uh, uh, with the, I think, fixed income and equity heads of uh, Afin Wang. And I found that very, very hilarious because the first question they asked, I think you saw that, right, Chris? It said, uh, are fund managers actually good at managing their own money? It says, no, right? So does the, the same case happens to you, actually, in a way. 
Yeah, I guess it does. You know, for me, it's more of like, um, you know, it, it's part of my my perspective as well, my philosophy. You know, when I'm doing a job, you know, that is my focus. Mm. So if my focus is like writing reports or investing the money, you know, that demands the majority of my attention. Mm. My own money, you know, that comes as a as a secondary um, priority. So so therefore, it tends to suffer. Not so much, I think, in terms of um, the 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 going in. I think mm. what tends to suffer is the going, the getting out <laughs> at the right time. <laughs> uh, yeah. So and, and uh, you know, sometimes it's like knowing. You know, I say a little bit of info, a little bit of knowledge is a very dangerous thing. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I give an example, a real life example of my own. Mm. I think, uh, you know, when Desert Park City. Ah, Assembling Group. Uh, yeah, you know, when it was first being launched and uh, and then everybody was saying, wow, you know, this place is going to be the big game changer and the Clang Valley is going to be something different, right? So I said, okay, you know, but then, you know, I'm a timber analyst and then this is Sumbling Group, you know, so it's like, <laughs> I'm not so sure, you know, and then I just missed that opportunity, you know, and, and really, you know, they have done very, very well hmm. in uh, Desert Park City. Uh, so when it comes to investment, less so because, you know, I do have more than just a little bit of knowledge, hmm. but it's just the attention that I give to my own investments, you know is second uh, fiddle to the attention I, I give to managing other people's money. So, so that's why. But if, you know, if let's say, you know, I had like that session with my wife every day and say, okay, this is what I'm going to tell people. So uh-huh. I tell you too, then you make that call. I think, <laughs> I think I'll be a lot richer la now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, probably last question for me, which is, and I asked this to Dato Tang as well. Um, the skills that you've built up and is no, uh, it's very incredible. You know, starting from an engineering base and and, and going into equities and, uh, and picking up those skills, right? What advice would you give to parents to inculcate this kind of investing and financial habits to your children? In a way, yeah. So, so I actually do talk to my children. Uh, not so much, I think, uh, because it's, you know some of them are still a bit young. Yeah. Uh, on the investing side of thing, but I do encourage them to be curious. You know, mm. I think this whole, to, to me, you know, when, when I look at staff or whatever, I, I look at two things. Mm. Okay, I look at three things. The third one is quite hard to spot. The first is passion. Mm. You know, they need to have a passion about something. It could be anything. Yeah. You know, let's say if, uh, you know, let's say like um, somebody says that, oh, I like running. You know, mm. then, okay, you know, what shoes do you wear? Where's your, where's your most passionate uh, track? You know, somebody told me the other day, uh, I like reading comics. Okay, who's your favorite artist? You know, where do you source your comics from? Um, and then, so, so that's something that, you know, as an investor, you want to look for mm. in the management of a company. Mm-hmm. The second thing I look for is curiosity. Mm. You know, it's like, is this person, you know, do they care about what's happening around them? You know, do, mm. they, do they look out for uh, why things happen the way they do? And that's really the one that I encourage my children to be about. Like, you know, mm. if you are looking at YouTube, don't just look at, you know, go and learn something, you know, Correct. infotainment, you know, rather yeah. than just pure entertainment. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's very important for all investors. You know, don't just always tell people, don't just read one source. Please, yeah. if you're going to put in money, please read more than one source, read more than one time. Mm-hmm. You got to follow that story for a while before you make that call. Uh, you know, find out really what is, 
the company doing, who are the owners, who are the management, what is the industry happening, that curiosity has to be there. Mm. Uh, the third one I look is integrity, la, but you can't spot that so easily. Yeah, so fast, it takes la. time. Mm. Yeah, okay. MJ, any last question? That was yeah, I, I believe that, uh, John, you mentioned earlier on that uh, about the faith, right? Mm, yes, you correct. To talk about, so I, I know, John, do you have a question about that? Because I find it very fascinating. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I want to leave podcasts, it for you. Leave it for right? you. Yeah. We, 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 when I look at all the podcasts, I I find that only Peter, right, or other. Um, but Peter's more spiritual rather than faith based, actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, they, they tend to be they tend to be lumped together. So, like, what role has uh, faith played for you, uh, Chris, in terms of your career and, of course, even your personal life? You know. Well, I guess, you know, my in terms of my career, uh, uh, in terms of my personal life, because it's a big thing, you know, yeah. that, that's really what, in a way, defines me. Uh, in terms of my career, you know, I remember the words of uh, Warren Buffett, right? Mm-hmm. You look at somebody, you must look for intelligence and integrity, right? Mm-hmm. Without the second, the first is actually very dangerous. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, 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 why, why I think integrity is very important is because of my faith. La. Now, mm-hmm. of course, to different people, you know, whether the person has faith or not or what kind of faith it is, I think integrity is very important. Mm. And uh, we discharge our professional duties along that line. Uh, so on the sales side, you know, I always tell my analysts, I say, you know, at the end of the day, people are going to remember you for what you write, you know. if mm. and, and the worst is people are going to remember you for the wrong things or the bad things that you write. Mm. So if you write a report saying that, uh, you know, buy this, and uh, the stock went up, you know, people may remember you for two weeks. Uh. If you say buy this and the stock went down, they're going to remember you for a couple of years. <laughs> you know, so why did you call that buy when, uh, you know, and it didn't turn out? If you call that buy and you were integrity, you know, you, you, you put your heart and soul to it, it's really what you believe. It's okay. Let people criticize you for that two years. Your conscience mm. is clear. Mm. You know, you're, you're honest to your faith. But if let's say you 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 know somebody took you out for drinks and, and whatever and you got some kickback, well that's between you and God lah. You know it's going to catch up to you one day lah. So so that's why to me integrity is is really so expensive lah. And I mean so so important you know and yeah. even more so when you are managing other people's money lah because yeah people not going to forget it lah if you didn't have integrity you know it may, it may not come back to you now but one day you know whether here or elsewhere it will come back to you <laughs> well said well said mg any more questions no i think that is a that is a very simple but rarely talked about thing i feel in the industry because you know it's finance so yeah. uh misaligned interests lack of integrity yes outright scams and frauds uh, these are these are very commonplace but i think what you just said is not very commonplace and uh, you yeah. know needs to be heard more yeah and i think it's a very good conclusion to the podcast as well so chris i really really enjoyed this to be honest i i i i hope you're open to a part two where we can maybe talk about certain more companies <laughs> uh thank you so much for your time and uh we wish that the audience have gleaned something from this podcast. I certainly have. And we look forward to seeing you guys in the next show. Goodbye, everyone. Thank, Thank you. Bye. Yeah.